Some years back, some of you might remember, there was a um, barbecue restaurant that was being built or renovated nearby. You might recall that renovations began, a sign went up, and work was happening at this restaurant to be. And doubtless the hopes and expectations of many barbecue lovers were raised. Oh, barbecue restaurant. There's going to be a barbecue restaurant. And then at some point, the work just stopped. To a regular passerby, you just kind of thought like, okay, some, sometime, at some time, people just stopped going there to do the work. The work had begun. What was there done wasn't undone, but it was left unfinished. And that's something of what it was like for the people of God in Jerusalem at 520 B.C. Only they did not leave a restaurant unfinished. They left Yahweh's temple unfinished. His temple, which was a gracious gift from God to His people. God tabernacling, dwelling among His people. This precious gift that it was. A pointer, a type of the Messiah who was to come, who would tabernacle amidst His people. They left that unfinished. So as to provide a little bit of context of how they even got to that point, 18 years earlier, 538 B.C., King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, so as to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the heart of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation that the Jews who had gone into captivity in Babylon could go back and rebuild the temple. You see that in the opening verses of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, essentially. Now, unlike the Babylonians, when the Babylonians would come into a land, they would ransack the land. They would destroy temples, and they would have the people exiled. Under Cyrus, the Persian policy was different. Cyrus, say in the case of the Jewish people, allowed them to go back to their homeland, allowed them to rebuild the temple, and even furnished resources to do that. The Jewish historian Josephus Interestingly, he shares in his work, Antiquities of the Jews, that when Cyrus had read the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah concerning him, which was written approximately a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. You should read it. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Read into Isaiah 45. Yahweh identifies Cyrus by name approximately a hundred years before he was even born. Well, according to Josephus, when the prophecy of Isaiah was read to him, Josephus writes, quote, An ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. And so Cyrus is issued a decree. And about 50,000 Jews make the journey back to Jerusalem. Now you might have thought that many more would have gone, but apparently they had become comfortable in Babylon. They had settled down, they had homes there. Some people didn't even know what it was like to live in Jerusalem. They were born in captivity in Babylon. So 50,000 go back. And when you get into Ezra chapter 3, you see that they get off to a good start. The altar is rebuilt, so offerings can happen. The burnt offering is happening. The Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated. And the offerings that had to be offered with that were offered in other feasts. You go on a little bit later. Levites were appointed to oversee the house of the Lord. And then the foundation of the temple was laid. Things were off to a great start. But as is so often the case in the lives of God's people, as they were doing the work that they were supposed to do, discouragement arose from within, at least for some, and conflict arose from without. 
There were some, when they saw the foundation of the temple laid and they, they had seen the Solomonic temple in its glory, they began to weep because they knew that what they saw before their eyes was, it, it just paled in comparison to the glory of the former temple. So they were discouraged from within. But then when you get into Ezra chapter 4, you see that they were enemies, adversaries, who sought to stop the rebuilding of the temple. You look in Ezra chapter 4 and you see that they did this all the days of Cyrus until the reign of Darius. And the adversaries succeeded in causing a 16-year work stoppage. People were back into the land, 538 B.C. They're working until around 536 B.C. And then because of the adversaries, discouragement from within, conflict from without, work stoppage. Until about 520 B.C. Now during that time, the people became more interested in personal matters than spiritual ones. And as a result, they too became part of the problem. They had gotten about their own business, and they had left Yahweh's work unfinished. They they began to build their lives. Their lives were now being built in Jerusalem, but the problem was their lives were not built around God. And so into that environment, in 520 B.C., into that context, the Lord sends His prophet Haggai so as to call the people of God to a renewed commitment and to a fresh work of obedience. That's the context leading in to the book of the prophet Haggai. And with that said, we begin in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord, or Yahweh, came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, And to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Now, this isn't a verse that you'll find on mugs or Christian t-shirts. You probably won't see it when you go into another Christian's house, hanging on a wall in a frame. You're not not going to see that, usually. I I don't think so. But that doesn't mean that this verse isn't important. There's a lot that we can learn. There's important context that's created just from Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. First, I want you to notice the chronological markers given and the specific persons named. This is a reminder to you and I that this is not fanciful fables that we're reading here. This is real history. I also call your attention to the fact that if you go through the prophets, not the post-exilic prophets like Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi, prophets who prophesied post the return of the people from captivity. When you look in Amos and other prophets, you'll see that the date markers that they usually give, the chronological markers, use the kings of Israel and Judah. But that's not what we see here in Haggai. It's not what we see in Zechariah either. The reason being, the Jewish people were essentially without a king and without a country of their own at least formally and temporally. So the pagan kings were used to provide a chronological dating of the time in which it was written. Interestingly, you see this in Luke's Gospel as well. Luke does that kind of thing in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. So that's the first thing I want to call your attention to. second thing I want to call your attention to is to consider when this prophecy came. It came on the first day of the sixth month. And you say, oh, it came on June 1st. Nope, not quite. (laughs) The sixth month in the Jewish calendar is the month Elul. It corresponds with late August, early September. Some have specifically dated this prophecy to August 29th, 520 B.C. 
Now, interestingly, the first day of the month was when the Jewish people would celebrate the new moon. It'd be the new moon festival, which means that it would be a day where people would not be working, the assembly would be gathered, offerings would be offered. It would be a great time for the message of the prophet Haggai to be given. There the people are. It's a day where they aren't working. And interestingly, apparently, at least in times past, you could look in 2 Kings 4.23 for this, people sought the instruction of the prophets on the new moon. So here, at such a time as this, God is going to send his prophet Haggai with a message for his people. Third, I want to consider briefly some bios of the persons mentioned here in verse 1. First, King Darius. Um, Darius was the king of Persia, 521 B.C. to 486. Sometimes you'll see his reign dated 522 B.C. to 486. This prophecy occurred during the second year of his reign. A little bit of context quickly. You might say, how did we even get to Darius? Well, after Cyrus, king of Persia, after he reigned, interesting reign for Cyrus, he defeated Babylon, 539 B.C., Then a year later, he issues the proclamation for the Jewish people to go back and rebuild the temple, 538 B.C. He was a king that was regarded as a father to the people. Well, then after he died in 530 B.C., his son Cambyses, Cambyses II, took the throne. And he was regarded by and large as a tyrant. He assassinated his brother. And he reigned until he was on a campaign. And then he heard that his brother had taken the throne, or someone had taken the throne. I believe the story was that he or his brother had taken the throne. Not wanting to deal with whatever the issue was, apparently, he killed himself. And it wasn't long after that that Darius, an officer in his army, would ascend to the throne. That's how Darius comes to a position of power. It's this Darius, by the way, that you'll see in Ezra chapter 6. He's hearing complaints from the adversaries of the Jews. He goes into the royal archives. He discovers the decree of Darius, uh, the decree of Cyrus, and then he is the one who oversees the Jews continuing to rebuild the temple. So that's how we get to Darius. Well, what about Haggai, the prophet? We don't know much about this man. We don't know his genealogy. No genealogy is given. We don't know how old he was. Did he see the previous temple? Was he born in exile? We don't know. We know that his name means festal or festival. It might be an abbreviated form of the festival of Yahweh, which might suggest that he was born on one of the Jewish feasts. But what we do know is that he was a prophet. He was a prophet of God. As we're told, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. The language there in Hebrew can literally read as the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It's as though Haggai was the mailman. (laughs) He wasn't the originator of the message. He was the deliverer of the message. It didn't begin with him. It didn't originate with him. He had a message to give to the people that was from Yahweh. That's who Haggai was. And what about these other men that are named? Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, he was the governor of Judah. Notice, not king, he was the governor of Judah. And Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Now, these men were leaders in Israel. Um, Interestingly, although the people would hear the words of the prophecy, note, it was originally addressed to these men. To the leaders, leader of the civil office, leader of the religious office. Why? I would think it was initially addressed to them because they were in positions of leadership and they had apparently, if you will, signed off on the complacency of the people. 
which was a witness to their own complacency as well. So that's a little bit of the context as we get into the message. So to them, to the remnant in Jerusalem, most immediately to these leaders of the remnant, the word of the Lord came saying, verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of armies, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Excuses. The Bible has a lot to say about excuses. Remember during Jesus' parable of the Great Supper? It's just this great invitation. Great invitation. People are invited to this banquet, to the supper. But what you see over and over again are lousy excuses. Right? One person says in that parable, I have bought a field and I must go out to see it. <laughs> like, really? You have an invitation to this great banquet. It's like, right now, right now, you have to go to the field and see the field that you just bought? We see in Luke chapter 14, verse 18, that they all with one accord began to make excuses. But excuses have been part and parcel of the fallen condition, even right after the fall, right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, right? When the Lord asks Adam if he ate from the tree of which God had commanded him not to eat, Adam responded, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate, Genesis 3, 12. But then, shortly thereafter, God asks Eve, What is this that you have done? She responded by saying, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Genesis 3, verse 13. Excuses. Whether it's Adam, whether it's Eve. I mean, you go on, think about Aaron in Exodus 32. I just threw the gold into the fire, and this calf came out. Excuses. The sluggard. I can't go to work. There's a lion in the street. I'll be devoured. Excuses. The people of Haggai's day, all of those other examples, are reminders to us of our proclivity to make excuses that are illegitimate in the sight of God, though sometimes they appear oh so legitimate to us. More about that in a moment. The people of Haggai's day, uh, the excuse of the return remnant was, the time has not come. The time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, the first hint that this was an illegitimate excuse is found in the way in which God identifies the people. Notice how he identifies them? He doesn't use that familiar identification, my people. Rather, he uses this identification, this people. It connotes God's displeasure. As though to say, these people, they're not acting like my people. Notice, it's not that the people said no. It's that they said, not yet. And I think for us, when we use that kind of excuse, not yet, we kind of do it because it's not that we're saying no, we're just saying that there's something else that has hindered me. Something else that has hindered us. It's not my unwillingness, it's the providence that I find myself in. So the issue is not with me. The issue is with the providence that you, God, have put me in. The time has not come. I think we use that expression in one way or another, and we could see ourselves to be like, to use a baseball analogy, we might see ourselves like batters in the dugout or pitchers in the bullpen. Like, of course I would serve. I would, I would serve. But the manager hasn't called me to the plate yet. He hasn't called me to the mound. I would, I'm here. 
but the time hasn't come yet. If the manager calls me, I will definitely step up to the plate or go to the mound. It's an excuse where, again, no surprise, the problem is not with ourselves. It's the providence we find ourselves in. Now, if we don't use the excuse, the time has not come, we have other ones that we use, right? Maybe one of the most popular ones would be something like this. Things are really busy right now. Things are really crazy. Things are really hectic. When I get through this season with work, when I get through this season with kids, when I get through this season with school, when I get through this season or that season, it's only a matter of the circumstances I find myself in. When that's over, when the time comes, then God will have first place in my life, His work and His worship. And I think it's good for us to be reminded even now when it comes to reasons as to why God does not have the preeminent place in our lives as it relates to His worship and His work, any excuse in His eyes is going to be illegitimate. He demands to have the first place in our lives. We'll see more about that as this prophecy unfolds. Now, before we get to the people's Uh, For God's response to what the people were saying, I want to call your attention to something here in verse 3. In verse 3 we read, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, I want to call your attention to something. I think it's important to note. If you were to just read through the book of Haggai, it's 38 verses, two chapters, 38 verses, you would see a repeated emphasis Rather overtly, you won't have to look for it. It's going to be there right before your eyes as to the fact that this message is from God, from Yahweh. The language here in verse 3 is language that we saw in verse 1. But as you go through this prophecy, you're going to see over and over again, as declares the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of hosts says, by one counting in 38 verses, 26 times, the point is made that God is speaking. I think it's important for us, even now, just to remember, what are we hearing when we're going through the text of Scripture? We are hearing the word of Yahweh. We are not to receive this as the word of men. It came by the hand of the prophet Haggai, but it is the word of God. It is God's message for God's people in this place right now for such a time as this. You might say, well, why the emphasis then, though? Why that emphasis right there and then in that historical context in 520 B.C.? I don't know. Maybe Haggai and the Lord anticipated and he communicated through Haggai that there might be opposition from the people. So the emphasis is made, this is from the Lord. But it's not just a rebuke that comes. You're going to see some amazing encouragement in this book. And the people needed to know that the rebuke and the exposing of their hypocrisy and the amazing encouragement and prophecy that was going to come was from the Lord. Both the rebuke and the encouragement. That may be why the emphasis is here in the way it is for such a time as it was. Well, now we get to verse 4. The people's um, excuse voiced in verse 2, Yahweh's response voiced in verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? With one question, likely meant to pierce the people's consciences. Yahweh exposes their hypocrisy and their misplaced priorities. So it's not time to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the house of Yahweh. And it hasn't been apparently for 16 years. But it is time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and implication to have spent the time that you did building them. Is, Is that what I got here? Is that the argument? Is that what you want to go with? Is essentially the argumentation. 
Now, you'll note here that um, they dwelt in paneled houses. And you might begin to wonder, is it intrinsically wrong to dwell in a paneled house of some kind or another? Is that why we renovated the church basement? To get rid of the wood paneling? Because we don't want paneled houses here. Or maybe you think, no, there should be paneled houses downstairs. No, it has nothing to do with that. Paneled houses aren't intrinsically evil. Uh, When you see that language here, the language connotes either of two things. Either it connotes that the houses were roofed in, essentially meaning that they were finished. Like you finished your houses. More likely, it connotes that these houses were a step above the average houses. They were paneled houses. They had decorative details that were added to them that would say, you guys went even above and beyond. You could look in places like Jeremiah 22, 14, 1 Kings 7, 7. And again, it's not that such decorative details are wrong. Like You could add decorative details to your homes, and that's fine. It's not intrinsically evil. The issue here is when anything, even good things that aren't sinful, when anything takes the place of preeminence over that which ought to be primary, namely the worship and the work of God, that is where the problem lies. That's where the problem is. Just know what the problem wasn't for these people, okay? It wasn't that they were lazy. These people were not lazy. They came, they started to rebuild the temple, and then they couldn't build the temple. Some opposition rose, they stopped, and so on. But then they built their own houses. They, they, they weren't lazy. They spent enough time to put some decorative details to them. As you go on in this prophecy, you see that they put a lot of time towards agricultural things, sowing, and so on. So laziness was not the problem of this people. The problem of this people was that they put other priorities in front of the things of God. That was the issue. And that ultimately was a heart problem, spiritually. They were not like David. Remember David when he said, I dwell in the palace of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. And and, and he knew something was off about that, in in his heart anyway, when he's seeing the comparison, and he wanted to build the temple. Why? Because his heart was moved. I'm living in this place, and God is in the, 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 the throne of God. The Ark is in a tent. See, there was something about that that just moved his heart. But these people, at this point in time, they're fine living in paneled houses while the temple is in ruins, desolate. And before you're too hard on them, before we're too hard on them, let's remember who these people were. They were the 50,000 that came back. That's who these people were. Remember how I told you that the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus? Well, God stirred the heart of these people. If you look at Ezra chapter 1 as well. They came and they take the journey back to Jerusalem. They're working hard. They are the ones who are undertaking all of this. But yet they became discouraged and they stopped. They were running well and they were hindered. You might say that they took their eye off the ball. They were zealous at one time. But at some time, that zealousness began to diminish. And maybe such has been the case with some of you. Maybe you look back at a different time in, in your life and you say, I was zealous for the things of God. God had front, the front and center position in my life. I ran hard after the things of God. I was about His worship. I was about His adoration. I was about His service. And then something happened. And whatever happened, it set you on a trajectory where all of a sudden God moves from the front seat driving to maybe the passenger seat, then maybe to the back seat, Maybe to the trunk. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have the place of preeminence that belongs to him. 
And I just want to remind you that misplaced priorities don't need to stay that way. You're here today for such a time as this. Mismanaged, misplaced priorities need not stay that way. Now is the time for everybody, wherever you are in your Christian walk, hear this. God will not settle for being runner-up in your life. He won't. You go through the Scriptures, that's clear. He wants the throne. He deserves the throne. In all things, Christ is to have the preeminence. In your recreation, in your work, in all of who you are, He is to have the preeminence in all things. You are to acknowledge Him in all your ways. You're to do everything you do, even eating and drinking for His glory. He wants the preeminence in everything. And He will not settle for being runner-up. Now I know, There are so many things that can crowd in on the worship and the work of of the Lord. But put it to yourself in this way. Put it to yourself in a way where, where you're going to feel it. That if so many other things can happen, you say, if I could find time for this or for that, if you could find time for work and for play, for sport and for dance, for homework and for yard work, for vacations, for recreation, for this and that. You find time for all of those things. But you wonder, where is the priority of God going to fit in? If that's something that's going through your mind, like you find time for all those things, but you don't know where God's going to fit in, that is a heart problem spiritually. That's what it is. If all those other things must be, and you would defend it, I I must do this, I must do that, I must do this. If all of those other things must be, but the worship and work of God may be, that's a heart problem. And if repentance is truly going to come, it starts with an acknowledgement of that being wrong. It comes with an acknowledgement to say, Father, I know you ought to have the first place in my life. I know that Christ ought to have the preeminence in all things. And I think if it's going to change, if a fresh work of grace is going to happen, if so much other stuff has been put in your life, that affection and devotion for God has diminished or has been pushed out, if that's what has happened, a first work of grace so often begins with a recognition of wrongdoing and is so often accompanied by words like, I have sinned, this is wrong, I am wrong, Lord, I am sorry. That's where it begins. And you'll find him ready right there. Interestingly, you'll find he to have been the one to have prodded the work in the first place and ready to invigorate you on the next step of your journey to serve him. Now, God was going to tell them what to do. But first, he wanted them to consider their behavior and the outcomes of their behavior. We see this in verses 5 through 7 where we read, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God was essentially telling the people, look at where your misplaced priorities have gotten you. So twice, you see it in verse 5 and you see it in verse 7, he tells them, consider your ways. Set your heart upon your ways. Ways could be likened to roads. So look at the pathway, the roads in which you've traveled, behaviorally speaking. Set your heart upon your ways. Think about it. Look at it. Examine it. Give attention to your behaviors and the outcomes of those behaviors. If they did, they would see that seeking first, their priorities and their pleasure led to ongoing dissatisfaction and frustration. 
That's what happens. By the gra- by, it'll be a grace of God that that happens. It's a really slippery slope if you seek first your pleasure and your own passions and you don't have that happen. That's an even more dangerous place to be in, you might say. Well, they were setting their heart and affection on their priorities and pleasure, and to help them see this, Yahweh set forward five couplets of poetic comparisons. You look at verse 6. They sowed much, but they brought in little. In other words, your agricultural returns are far below what you thought that they would be. It's not that there wasn't any rate of return. There was. It just was a lot less than what they thought it would be. You look also in verse 6. They ate, but they didn't have enough. It's as though their food supplies were constantly meager. It's as though no meal was enough to satisfy them. Interestingly, this was part of the covenantal judgment that God had promised to his people if they forsook his covenant, if they forsook obedience to him. Leviticus 26, verse 26 says, You shall eat and not be satisfied. They drank, but they didn't even have enough to get drunk with. God's not endorsing that. It's obviously a sin, Old Testament, New Testament alike. But he's saying, look at what's happened. You're working so hard. You're doing all this. And you don't even have enough drink to get drunk with if you wanted to. He tells them that they clothed themselves, but they couldn't get warm. And he tells them that they couldn't keep what they earned. It was as though they had holes in their pockets. And Yahweh was the one who put the holes there. Now, there are other variables doubtless going on in the land, right? Inflation. So if you have like meager returns in produce, what's going to happen? Cost of living is going to go up and so on. So you have all of these things happening in this immediate context. And the Lord wanted them to see. He wanted them to think. Consider your ways. He wanted them to see the vanity and the futility of making him secondary. That's what he wanted them to see. Behold the vanity and the futility of putting me in a secondary place in your life. In a sense, he was calling them to interpret their providence. Now, I do want to say this because I think it's important. Please know that you and I cannot read providence, God's dealings in the events of our lives and in the world around us. We cannot read providence flawlessly. In fact, to try to read providence is often dangerous business. Right? Somebody might say, it's an open door. And my interpretation of providence is open doors equal green lights. If it's an open door, I must walk through it. Not necessarily. Open doors could be a test. Not necessarily a green light. You have to be careful about the way you read providence. Now, these people in that Old Covenant context, they had a little bit of a grid to use, right? The Mosaic Law, right? We're eating and we're not satisfied. Oh, wow, this is part of covenant judgment. Is God displeased with our priorities? We, however, have to be extra careful. Someone might think that their hardship connotes God's displeasure. My life is so hard, I'm going through a difficult season, and they might say, this is happening because God's displeased with me. When in fact, it's God's plan to glorify himself in a dear child that he loves in their perseverance while conforming them to the image of Christ. Others might make the mistake of not seeing how the dysfunction in their lives, in their marriages, in their children, and so on, are at least at some level related to forsaking God's paradigm for living. And while we cannot interpret providence flawlessly, and I do want to say we're likely to interpret it wrongly, we ought to know that leaving aside God's commandments and making personal priorities greater than God's is a recipe for dysfunction, it's a recipe for distress, it's a recipe for frustration, and it's a recipe for fruitlessness. 
Now, God's going to tell the people what to do. And we're going to see that in verse 8. Before we get to verse 8, I want you to skip ahead to verses 9 through 11. Let's read verses 9 through 11 as God reinforces this point, and then we'll come back to verse 8. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine and on oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. I want you to behold in these verses the decimation of deism. If you don't know what deism is, I'll explain it to you in a moment. But here you have the decimation of deism. Sometimes my daughter, when we play blocks, um, she'll see me building something with the blocks, and then she'll come over, and she'll just knock it down. Just loves it. Kind of takes some joy in knocking it down. She decimates what I'm attempting to build. Well, the position of deism, you might say, is decimated in these verses. Deism is the belief that God created the world, but he doesn't intervene in it. Like, he lets things like nature just simply run their course, but he doesn't really get involved. He's distant and removed. That's not what God teaches. God does not believe in deism. He is the one who pronounced, look at verse 9, a double chastisement on the people. They looked for much, and it came to little. First chastisement. And when they brought it home, he blew it away. Second chastisement. And why did he do that? Well, it's put in rather vivid terms here. The temple was in ruins. Get these two pictures in your mind, right? The temple is in ruins. This place that was a gift of God to his people was to be the center of old covenant worship. That's what this place was to be. It was a representation of who Christ would be when Christ came. It's in ruins, but yet they have these beautiful paneled houses and notice the language, they're running to them. The running connotes where their passion and their priorities were. It wasn't here in the worship of God. It wasn't in him being central. It was in their own pleasure, in their own homes. They run to that. And so as a result of that, God brought about the chastisement that he did. And then the people were told why the drought had come. It wasn't Mother Nature. It wasn't just random chance or inanimate creation that brought it about. Whatever the secondary causes were, God tells them who the first and primary cause was. He tells them very clearly, I called for the drought. I did it. Why did I call for the drought? He tells them that essentially too. You did it. I did it because you did it. I called for the drought because of your spiritual indifference. That's why I called for the drought. I think these verses are a good reminder that the forces of nature are not independent forces. They are, if you will, agents in the hands of a sovereign God. Psalm 148, things like stormy wind fulfilling his word. He's ultimately sovereign over all things, including that. Now, two things I want to say before we get to the concluding call that God gives his people and gives to us today. I want to say two things. Before you jump to the conclusion, and you might not, but just in case you would, jump to the conclusion, okay, all of this cause and effect stuff Right of them not putting God first and then they're having this measure of dissatisfaction upon the work that they're doing and so on. This is the stuff of old covenant. has no application to us today. 
Don't forget Matthew 6.33. That's a New Testament verse. In that New Testament verse, Jesus told His disciples, told those gathered to hear the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That's New Testament. Food, clothing, drink, Seek first the kingdom of God and you have these beautiful promises. You could be about God's business. Within the context here, you don't have to worry like the Gentiles do. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. So you can put the things of God first. You can run hard after the things of God. Not being derelict in your responsibilities, no, but making God your first priority. You can actually do it because God will cover the necessities. For as long as you need them to live this life, as long as he would have you to live this life, he will provide food and drink and clothing. You make it your priority to put him as your first priority and you seek first the kingdom of God. Beautiful promise. Don't worry. You don't have to worry like the Gentiles do. And you don't want to be consumed with those things as so often we can be. Or even as the people in Haggai's day were. God was essentially telling people, Christ was telling people that he would take care of all that they needed as they were about his business first and foremost. I want to say something else briefly before we move to verse 8, and I think this is helpful to know. The people in Haggai's day, they're suffering from a drought. You know, to some degree, the water and the rainfall was lower because their produce was meager. Cost of living went up. Haggai is a book that kind of shows you a picture of inflation. Like, this is, they were living in a time of inflation, and we can relate to that, can't we? And I want to call your attention to something here. I think it's helpful. Behind the shortfalls of harvest and behind the overstretching of one's dollar is God's sovereignty. Behind economic mismanagement that results in inflation and a lower standard of living is ultimately God's sovereignty. Now granted, a society suffering under the righteous judgment of God via one providence or another does not equate to God being displeased with every person in that society. Right? There are Christians who have had the wrath of God satisfied by Christ and God loves His people and may be well pleased with the lives that they are living. But nonetheless, they are experiencing these things as well. Inflation and cost of living rising and so on. And I do want to say this. I think this is so important. To just see the secondary causes. Right? Oh, this is just nature. Oh, it's economic mismanagement. If you just see those things, but you don't look past those things to see how Yahweh is ultimately in control, He's sovereign, that could lead to hatefulness instead of humility. Right? You'll just say, it's them, it's these people that are doing it, rather than saying, ultimately, God's sovereign over it. So instead of humbling yourself under the hand of God, you start hating people. But if you see that God is sovereign, all of a sudden you're in a place of humility. It could lead to resentment instead of repentance. Maybe God's trying to get my attention through this. Rather than me just being consumed with them and what they're doing, maybe there's a message for me in this. And instead of resentment, I should have repentance. Instead of dissatisfaction, they're making my dollar not go where it used to go. Maybe I should practice contentment. Maybe God has me in this season so that I might glorify Him by not being discontent like the world is discontent, but by growing in the grace of contentment. Society can be mismanaged by human authorities, but the universe isn't. If the world is in the hands of God, and it is, 
we ought to bow the knee and not raise our fists. That brings us to the message that God gave to the people. This was there to do. He told them to do this. They needed to take action. That's where this drives to. That's where this message this morning drives to. To take action. He tells them in verse 8, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Here's where it drives to, the point of action, the clear imperative from Yahweh. He doesn't leave it mystical. He doesn't leave it, you know, opaque where they can't understand what to do. Very clearly, go, get wood, and build. Take action. Whatever has been left undone, now it changes. It changes today. You start getting those things done. Awesome clarity right there. Maybe that's a message for you. Whatever's been left undone, whatever should be at the front and center of your priority list but hasn't, now's the time. Perhaps that's the timely message for you in this moment. But it's not just about doing the action. It is. It is. You've got to do the action because it can't just stay up in here in my mind. I know I should be doing this and it's changed my mind, but repentance, a change of mind, ought to result in a change of behavior. But there are motivations that he gives the people to drive them along that path of obedience. He tells them to bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. When you love someone, you know what they enjoy. Like if I wanted to surprise Lauren, I'm not surprising her with a restaurant to a great steakhouse. <laughs> Unless they have world-renowned salads. <laughs> we're, just, we're just not going there. I know she'd like you know, a, a local coffee shop. She, she'd like that, something like that. When you know someone, you know what they like. You know what they enjoy. You know what brings them pleasure. And you want to do those things because you love them. And God is telling the people, go, get wood, and rebuild the temple. Why? What's your motivation? It's not just about your harvest coming in better. It's not just about that. You want to do this so that I may be pleased with it and take pleasure in it. Do you know the infinite God of the universe takes pleasure in things? He takes pleasure in those who fear him. He takes pleasure in those whose ways are blameless. He takes delight in the prayer of the upright. He loves a cheerful giver. When we offer the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that confess and give thanks to his name, and we do not neglect to do good and share, we are told with such sacrifices, he is well pleased. He's pleased when children obey his parents. These are all scriptural references that tell us things that he is pleased with. There are things that we could do that actually please him. And in like manner, when the temple was complete, God would take pleasure in it. He would take pleasure in the worship that was offered there, in the prayers that were offered in it. He would take pleasure in the way in which the temple was a pointer to His Son, Jesus Christ. But He wouldn't only take pleasure in it, He would be glorified. He would be glorified. This, by the way, is the end for which the universe was created It was the end for which the temple was to be reconstructed. God would be glorified in the obedience of His people as He was front and center in their priorities. He would be glorified. Look, they've made me front and center. He would be glorified by answering the prayers of His servants that prayed towards the vicinity of the temple. 1 Kings 8, 29 and 30. By showing grace to the people of of the Jewish people living in the vicinity of the temple and so on. And that brings me to two concluding applications today. Oh, how these motivations ought to pervade our lives and corporate worship. God's pleasure and God's glory. Those motivations ought to pervade our lives personally and our worship corporately. I start with the latter. Think of what would happen if everybody who came into this place came in, not with a consumeristic mentality, right? 
And we live in the evangelical culture today, and it's been this way for some time, where there can be places where at least at times the thinking is consumeristic. You know, people can plan services thinking of how a Sunday morning service should hold the attention of the visitor and garner the interest of the attender. When first and foremost, what are we about? The worship of God. That's what this is for. Is God pleased with this? Is God pleased with what's happening? Is He pleased with the way in which we listen to the way the Scriptures are read? Is He pleased with the way that we are singing to Him? Is He pleased with the way that we are coming in agreement in prayer? Is He pleased with the way that we are giving? Is He pleased with the sound doctrine that's being preached? Is He pleased with our fellowship? Is He pleased with the familial love that we show one another? Why? That's what it's all about. It's all about Him and His glory. And the goal of us coming together, think of how it would change if all of a sudden we all come into this place and we say, our motivation, first and foremost, is that God would take pleasure in it. It's a matter of him having pleasure. When we leave today, it isn't, did I like this? Did I like that? Was that enough? Was this enough? Was that good? Was that bad? No, it was, was God pleased with my worship. Instead of being worship critiquers, we should be those who know that our worship is being critiqued. Instead of being worship evaluators, we should know that we are ones whose worship is being evaluated. Was God pleased with my worship today? Oh, how that would just move among us. How that mentality might just work among us so that we might glorify God. And if we came in with that mentality to say, is God getting glory? Is God glorified in my singing, in my listening, in my giving, in my fellowship, in my love? Is he glorified in all of this? Now, to apply it a little further, individually. The temple in the Old Testament existed for God's glory and pleasure just as the temple of God today exists for God's glory and God's pleasure. The temple I'm referring to is not made of bricks and stones. It's not made of wood and mortar. This physical structure of the church, it's not God's house. God's house, God's temple, is the people of the living God, the church. It exists for His pleasure and His glory. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Similar language used in Ephesians 2. Similar language used in 1 Peter 2. The people of God are the temple of God. God takes pleasure in His people. Psalm 149, we see that. And His people exist for His glory. Look in Ephesians chapter 1, and you would see three times that Christians are saved to the praise of God's glory. That's the building you and I are called to build today. Jesus is building His church. He's going to continue to build it, but that's the building that we participate in, building up His church. The building materials, you might say, include the gospel, the word of God, prayer, Acts of love and kindness by which the body of Christ is nurtured and edified. The building process happens via the proclamation of sound doctrine. It happens when evangelism takes place and people are brought into the body of Christ. It happens, per Ephesians 4, when Christians show love towards one another and build up the body. That's how the building process happens. And no Christian should ever say, the time has not come to build the Lord's house. It's here. It's right now. And we must get to work. We must do something. And our priority is to be God's pleasure and God's glory. And I close with reminding you to not forget the motivation of the gospel. When we think of the temple, 
We ought to think of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, destroy this temple. Speaking of His body. Destroy this temple. And in three days I'll raise it up again. Speaking of His death and His resurrection. All who believe in Him not only experience the forgiveness of sins and have eternal life as a result, but they become temples of the living God. That's what drives you above all else to participate in building the temple. So brethren, make God's pleasure and God's glory your pursuit. Make God's work and God's worship your primary priority. Get involved in the work of building. Be committed to corporate worship. Learn from the book of Haggai. No excuses. And remember that Christ laid down His body so that you might be the temple of God for His pleasure and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit You might so work in us, Lord, that our minds might be freshly renewed, that our passions, Lord, may have You at the center of them, that by Your grace You might work in us so that we might joyfully with Your pleasure being our utmost desire and Your glory being our utmost desire, Lord, that we might be about the building process that You are already undertaking and that Your Son is doing. Oh, Father, thank You for Your mercy and thank You for Your grace. Thank You for all the provision that You've given us and thank You today for the provision of Your Word. And may we, by Your Holy Spirit, apply it and may You take pleasure in our application and may You be glorified as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.